Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You are but as a form in wax by him imprinted and within his power to leave the figure or disfigure it. Nothing could be more true, especially of Marie Tussaud's wax creations that almost take on a life of their own in Belinda Lyons-Lee's novel Tussaud. So, Belinda, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's good to see a smiling face (laughs) on the other side of the console. There are two threads to unravel here in your story. The actual history, but it's also a work of fiction. Your characters actually existed, Marita Sword. Yes, indeed she did. And basically, she's making a living out of death. Yes, she is. She certainly is. Through her own experiences of being taken prisoner in the French Revolution, her head shaved in readiness for the guillotine, um, she encountered death very closely. She was accused of being a royalist, which was the basis for her imprisonment in the tower. And it was only at the last minute that she was given a reprieve on the condition that she make the wax death masks of the victims of the guillotine. Because she's had some background yes. in this. Yes, yes. Prior yeah. to that, she was making um, wax anatomy for her uncle and with her uncle. And she had tinkered with putting wax displays up in her own windows of French royalty, French aristocracy, hence the accusation of being a royalist, whereas in her mind it was a sort of theatre, a sort of amusement and entertainment for the people of and France. And she's made uh, a replica of Marie Antoinette. She did indeed. Yeah, which is this almost is lifelike, but the sort of macabre reality of yes. making life out of death in some yes, way, saving her own life. That's right. Through death. And I think that's what fascinated me about the story. Um, when I read about what she had endured, I wanted to to push around on how that would affect someone mentally, what that would do to their psyche. When I began to explore how she used this very experience to build a business, to develop power uh, at a time when women had no currency and no power and no status, I thought this is a remarkable woman. You have her teaming up then with Philidor, who's uh, putting on a phantasmagoria, a lovely word, but he's a magician. He is, yes. He was a German stage magician, amongst other things, and um, such as he was very good with cards, he was very good with um, necromancy, he specialised in seances and spiritualism, which, of course, at the time was captivating for people. Uh, But his main um, strength, I suppose you could call it, was his voice and the way he built mechanical objects. So he's providing a sort of mechanic, almost like robot Yeah, correct. And so, yeah, the term for that at that time was automaton, which um, the Victorian era, and before that, of course, um, were absolutely fascinated with the way that mechanical pieces could replicate life. So we see the mechanical peacock, which could eat and drink. Um, We see the Turk, which was a famous automaton of the time that could best anyone at chess. All of these things were fascinating for the people of this time period. And then we also have His Grace William Cavendish, the fifth Duke of Portland, and his estate at Welbeck. Yes. 
He's a, well, madman? Crazy? Yeah. Eccentric? <laughs> Eccentric, yes. Yes, one could probably use all of those terms. Um, based, again, you're so right on a real person who, who lived. Um, and all of those eccentricities, when I began to read about him, um, the way that he insisted on having roast chicken perpetually uh, cooking in the manor house so that that smell pervaded the air 24 hours. Um, he wore a high-necked collar. Uh, that jutted up over his cheekbones and a hat pulled down as he walked through his grounds with an umbrella. Anyone who looked at him, who made eye contact with him, servants, staff, uh, farmers, labourers on the land were instantly dismissed. These sort of behaviours and mannerisms and eccentricities were very interesting to me. Cavendish actually met Tussaud and Philidor? In real life? Yes. No. No. So that, that's... In but, the novel? Yes. yes. But Tussaud and Philidor did. Yes, yes. correct. And so, so you've just added... That's right. Now, I added that layer of um, complexity there. It is true that Marie Tussaud toured England with Philidor, um, all around England and into Scotland, actually. Um, William Cavendish, the fifth Duke of Portland, crossed paths with Marie and Philidor only in as much as they shared a premises on Baker Street, right. separated by time. Now, we can go into the story. Right. And what you have is Marie Antoinette making the wax forms, having saved her life and such like. She recreates Marie Antoinette. She has a new life. Yes. But... As you say, she's trying to, to make a living. She's got two children. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, yes, uh, her teaming up with uh, Philidor, and this starts to get to another psychological level because having Cavendish, having seen uh, Philidor's presentation, uh, is, again, looking at trying to use these wax forms himself. So let's go on to Philidor here um, because what the story gets us into is almost the potential for necrophilia. <laughs> it's perver- the perversity starts to escalate. Yeah, the intrigue. So um, in the novel, I have Marie and Philidor work together to create a human-sized wax automaton using Philidor's skills in mechanical clockwork and Marie's ability with wax to, close, to clothe this thing in skin. Um, and of course, being human sized, being able to move like a human and communicate brings with it certain, um, mysteries. And we see in the dynamic between the three of them, Marie and Philidor and the fifth Duke of Portland, this fascination with replicating life and what it could mean. When he opened the door of Marie's workshop, it didn't squeak. He'd been careful to smear lamp oil on all the hinges in their lodgings without Marie's knowledge. He slipped inside and extinguished the lamp. The moon was already in full and open admiration of the woman standing in the centre of the room. The dress, the skin, the hair. It was all so real, so breathtakingly, horrifically real, that he had to tell himself under his breath that she was not real. He inhaled her scent, oil paint, and something else, an elegance, a regal essence that was intangible, yet present. The bare skin of his chest tingled, brushing her arm as he circled and recircled her. But it's it's this fascination with royalty Correct. as well. Correct, it That's is. It. It's both of those things, that I think, and I would argue that we still have that fascination today in we still line up 
in throngs to go and see Madame Tussauds Wax Museum in Sydney, in London, in Hong Kong. What is it about these replications of life that we still find enduringly attractive? Well, you, you see it in, in a lot of magazines that, yes. that use the royal family because yes. it's some way of trying to make a connection with that sort of level of yes. society or whatever. And I think also, even though we have got so much... Um, opportunity for exposure to these people through social media, for instance, nowadays and and film and TV, we can be a part of their lives, reality TV show, for instance, but nothing quite replicates standing opposite Mm -hmm. a figure in reality and sensing the physicalness of it, but yet still separate. Is it real? Is it not? I love those sort of um, mysterious questions around it. You have then Cavendish employing Marie and Philidor to create a lifelike character. And this is, Phil, uh, this is Cavendish's attempt almost to expunge the guilt of the past. It takes it yet to another level yes. in, in many ways. Yes, there was a girl who mysteriously disappeared from Cavendish's estate. This is fictional. This part is. Uh, when he was younger. And uh, Cavendish approaches Marie and Philidor for a private commission. And that is, in fact, to replicate um, this girl as a wax automaton who went missing from his estate. And you're so right, as a way to atone, to make amends to what happened. And part of the um, secrecy, I suppose, in in the novel is what had happened to that girl, what role did he play in her disappearance. But you've also then got it located at Welbeck, yes. which is Cavendish's estate. Yes. Tell us about that. Yes. Because it's a- Gothic marble. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I cannot wait to one day go and visit it myself. I feel like I've walked the corridors and traipsed up and down the stairs and explored the underground tunnels that um, I detail in the novel that um, can fit two carriages abreast and go deep down underground of Welbeck Manor. There is an underground ballroom with a big domed ceiling, alfrescos painted all over, numerous um, rail tracks that lead from the upstairs kitchen through down into the underground. But what you also mm-hmm. have then are paintings on the wall that tilt and we don't know why or who or how a presence that we think might have been in the corridor before or after we passed. Yes. So it, it elevates it to this yes. really gothic Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, oh gee, I love a bit of that. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> love it. The ingre- you know, the hint of ghostly presences, the hint of something other, the hint of the supernatural. I don't mind playing with that at all. But yes. you see, the, the layering, Marie Tussaud, just mm. life and death, Philidor, the the necrophilia, the sexual fascination Mm -hmm. uh, and and trying to elevate himself uh, and touch royalty. But then Cavendish going that extra layer, almost trying to commune with the dead for something in his past. Yeah, that's right. He pushed both hands under her body and lifted her out of the coffin. She was heavy and his limbs, not having lifted anything substantial for many years, were weak. He stumbled with his load, then righted himself with determination and sat her in the armchair opposite his by the fireplace. The fire was only a weak flame and she was far enough from the heat not to be compromised. She folded nicely at the hip her back straight, legs bent in front of her. He closed the coffin and sat down opposite. That's it. There you are. How do you like it there? Are you comfortable? This is your new home. Well, not new to you, really. You remember, dear? 
from when we were young and snuck in, father's study, out of bounds, but we didn't care, did we? Such fun, such game. <laughs> He's talking to the dead. He is. He is talking to the dead, yes. You also then have... Um, smells going through. You've already mentioned the roast chicken. The other one was uh, a um, now I don't know if I'm going to get the Latin correct. Circei yes. lutetiana lutetiana, which is a little flower named after Circe, mm-hmm. who could change men into animals. Mm. Yes. And this is pervading Marie's room and it's a hint Again, yes. the connection yes. to the supernatural in, yes, in some ways. Yes, that's exactly right. I think for a start, engaging the five senses when, when writing um, and when I'm imagining and, and putting myself very firmly in these um, scenes and settings, smell is a big way um, is a big way to bring that alive, both for myself and hopefully for the reader. And the smell of this flower was interesting to me because... I have had experiences where something has smelt a particular way that is uh, sweet and attractive, but also underneath has a rotting, fetid stench. And I wanted to bring that into the novel with this flower that um, pervades through Welbeck Abbey, that Marie can smell the rotted, fetid undertones to it, yet everyone else can just smell the sweetness to it, if at all. Um, and yes, it's right. That's true. It does have had the symbolic meaning behind it about um, what Cersei was capable of and therefore what these women, Marie Tussaud in particular, may be capable well, of. Yeah, Marie, mm. tran- well, transformed, well, transformed Philip, turned him into a bit of an animal in many ways mm. in terms of mm. exciting mm. sexual passion mm. and then exciting something other in, mm. in Cavendish. That's right. Belinda, I'm afraid we're going to have to end the interview there. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, the book is To Sword. Is it the correct You can say To Sword or To Sew. It's okay. absolutely correct either way. We can anglicise it. Yeah. The author is Belinda Lyons-Lee and it's a Transit Lounge release. So, Belinda, thank you very much for actually coming in. This is so exciting. I'm a real life... <laughs> A non-digital author. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. And now we are going to play Jan's interview with Emma Batchelor. Over the years, I've read many books about relationships, but Emma Batchelor has written about one that I haven't encountered before. Welcome, Emma. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Emma, your book, Now That I See You, starts six years earlier with a very happy occurrence. What's happening? That is our first date when my partner Jess and I first became romantically interested in each other. You were the initiator of the first date, the first dance and the first kiss. And you were the one who loved to celebrate not only the birthdays, but the anniversaries of lots of things, even your sexversary. How would you rate your sexual appetite? It's funny because it's not something that I I really talked about with my friends before writing this book, actually. (laughs) So I guess I would have not really thought about it particularly. I think I am quite a sexual person, but I haven't really compared it to anything else that I've seen or read 
but I would say that it is important to me, sex and sexuality. Well, from that first date, we then jumped three years later and you and Jess have moved in together. And that three years after that, you worry that the relationship isn't as you want. What's gone wrong? I guess our relationship to sex and sexuality and also our genders changed in a very quick (laughs) shocking Mm. moment and not in a way I had expected so my partner after a long time felt able to disclose to me that she was transgender and at that time we didn't even have that language or those words to to put to how she was feeling but she certainly had a discomfort in her gender and how it was being expressed and from that disclosure, everything changed. I'd like to take Jess's changes in steps and then to hear how you coped. First of all, why did you accept Jess's choice to change? I don't think I ever thought not to, to be honest. I, it was shocking to me, but it didn't change how I felt about her. I still loved her just the same. But... I did question what it would mean for each of us and for our relationship. But it's funny looking back on it, I never I never questioned her assessment of how she was feeling. And I was very conscious that I wanted to support her and I didn't want to make things harder for her if I could help it. Now you are calling Jess her now, but all through this book, you talk about her in the plural pronoun, they. Yes. yes. And you explain exactly how that came about. So now where Jessie is in her transition, we are using she, her pronouns and she identifies as female. But during the time period that I look at in our book, she thought that she was non-binary, so being neither he nor she as somewhere in between and the way she first described that to me was if you laid out both of your hands in front of you and if you took one pinky to be male and the other pinky to be female that there's that whole spectrum of all your other fingers in between and at the time when she started interrogating how she felt she felt like she was on kind of the middle finger, ring finger side of the female end. And I think that could still be true. I don't want to speak for her, but it does speak to that plurality of gender and that it can change over time as well as you you think about it and how it feels for you. Through the book, you also use the term femme. This is for Jessie's preferred dressing. So What did Jessie look like, Femme? She was beautiful. And that was something that I wasn't sure how I would feel about having only experienced her as presenting male and masculine. It was difficult at first, I think simply because it was different and not what I was used to. But there was definitely a naturalness and ease to her in that mode, which felt right for both of us, and I found that very appealing as well. There were other personal skills you were able to share, like nail polish and makeup 
and bleaching the black um, hairs. But what about sex? Yeah, it changed a lot, mainly because of our depression, (laughs) to be honest. That really took each of our sex drives out the window. As we try to work through what Jessie's transition meant for her and then for our relationship, it became increasingly more fraught. And not because Jessie was transitioning. That in itself was fine. It was just the way that we each handled what that required and the questions we had to ask of ourselves. And so we both we both became depressed and that's not really conducive to sex, unfortunately. Well, Jess didn't want to be a secret. When he was first caught in your bed by your father, he didn't want that a secret, but he wanted this sex change to be a secret. Do you think it was the secrecy of it all that made it so difficult for you? I think secrecy is hard and it is difficult. And I think it wasn't for me to divulge how Jessie felt to anybody else. That had to be a decision that she made on her timeline. But that did make it difficult for me because I felt I couldn't access the support networks I needed to get better to help her. So it was a very difficult time. And I think just the way we handled that, even between us and the way we were able to talk about it to other people, made things difficult. But then as we both got more comfortable and our understanding increased and we felt able to let other people in, it did get easier and it kind of normalised what we were going through as well. Later when Jess told friends and they just readily accepted it, Why couldn't you just be a friend? I think I realised as we went through this process that I just couldn't let my love, my romantic love for Jessie go. And that was my fear at the beginning that I, as she transitioned, I hadn't consciously been attracted to other women before. I didn't know if I would be when, as she changed. As I found that I was, I found my romantic love kind of build even more fiercely (laughs) I just couldn't Mm. let it go and I did feel like it would have been probably easier and better for us at the time if I could have separated that and if we could have maintained a more platonic friendship but I guess that's the nature of love and it's beyond control (laughs) sometimes. Well all through the book we read about your unquestionable love for Jess but that was not returned Jess was going on to hormones and possibly surgery. But prior to that, Jess stopped seeing you. You write about this and we read about your grief. You really suffered, didn't you? Yeah, it was a very difficult time. And I think it was because of the inequity of our relationship at that time. And I don't begrudge Jessie that at all. And now that we are together again, it's something that we've worked through a lot together, I guess, forgiving ourselves for how we behaved at the time and also each other. It was just such a difficult time with no roadmap. Yeah, I don't begrudge her any of what happened and that she wasn't able to reciprocate at the time. I think it's fair and I'm so happy that we can now. Well, Emma Batchelor, your book, Now That I See You, can you explain how you've written it? I've presented it as fiction, so it's not a traditional memoir. I would describe it as autofiction. So myself and Jesse and other people in our lives are characters. 
and I've presented it like a fictional story. And most things are true, but there is, of course, some fictional blurriness in there. And I've presented it as journals and emails and kind of to-do lists and things like that. I really wanted it to have an intimacy and a kind of sense of trespass from the reader that you're kind of having a very intimate glimpse <laughs> into, into our lives and what is, It really is an intimate glimpse. Even starting where you have with your letters that are addressed to dearest Jess and mm. hello, my love. But then there's just hello. And then further on, there's absolutely no introduction at all. You talk about financial breakup and hurt, the, the side story of rats and cats and the, <laughs> the possibility of Jess having a female demeanor you don't like. We never really hear Jess's words, except at the beginning. Jess's messages stopped having emojis. And then at the end of the book, Jess explains the partnership will not allow him to become the person Jess wants to be. I'd like you to read a little bit from page 105, please, Emma. Yeah, if I am completely honest with myself, which I am trying to be, I know that you have not been good for me. You continue to say it, and I have continued to deny it. I think I hear you now. You have always kept me at a distance, never letting me close enough to really see you. Even with that distance, I knew I had come closer than anyone, and that had made me feel special. Perhaps I perceived being allowed to come the closest as love. Regardless, things have been unequal for a long time now, even before your transition. I have been giving too much and you have been giving too little. It really explains the title of this book, Now That I Can See You. And Mm. congratulations, Emma. You're the winner of the Australian Vogels Literary Award. So what does that mean? It's very exciting and I think it still still hasn't really sunk in. Uh, But it's it's a prize for unpublished manuscripts by writers under 35. And I entered this around this time last year and I found out that I was the winner in August and then have been going through the publishing process so it's just incredible (laughs) to be the winner of that prize and to have have that platform behind me. Well now that I see you as a story of complicated love when a partner becomes transgender Emma Batchelor tells this through letters and journal entries over an 18-month period. Emma, thank you very much. It was just a lot. No worries. Thank you so much for having me.